Well, good evening. Hey, welcome uh, to our t- Wednesday night community here. Uh, I- if you're new, please feel free at any time, like we always say, to get up and go refresh your coffee or grab another snack or any anything like that. Hey, one of the things that, that we uh, value here is um, our, our great snacks. And that's like... A huge, huge value here, as you can see by people who aren't even listening right now. Their backs are to me. They're just getting food. But we, we would also love to have your help. We've got a great team of people uh, led by Jody. Uh, you see her in the back almost every Wednesday night preparing, getting ready, set up, making coffee, bringing snacks, donating cookies and all this sort of thing. Uh, we would love to have more help with that. If, if, you would, if that'd be something that you'd go, yeah, I would, I would love to serve in that way. There's a sign-up sheet in the back on the table, or you can just find, find Jody. She's in the back there, the one doing all the work. So, no, we've got others as well. So I'm just really, really thankful for all the people who, who serve. Um, here's, here's what I want to start this evening. Usually we do this a little bit later on in the night, but I want to start this evening right off the bat. Uh, I want you to take three minutes. And just at the tables that you're around, hopefully you've introduced yourself. If you haven't, just say your name real quickly. But here's what I'd like you to do is take three minutes and answer this question. What, what was your first job that you had and how much did you get paid? Okay. What was your first job and how much did you get paid? And then we'll pull back together. Okay. Three minutes. Go ahead. I'm sure you guys, anyone have, anyone have like, remember that show Dirty Jobs? Anyone have some really just kind of horrible, horrible jobs of awful things? What's, what's like the worst one that you heard someone say? What's that? Detasseling? 
Okay. It has nothing to do with tassels. Okay. I can say it doesn't sound that bad, but it's probably much worse than I'm thinking. Okay. <laughs> Any other awful ones? Cleaning out the grease trap in schools. Ooh. Only one who could beat that is maybe someone who says teacher in schools. All right. <laughs> uh, a lot, a lot of crazy jobs. I'm, I remember one of my one of my first jobs was working for a medical electronics distributor in in Longmont, where I was living outside of Longmont, and I was I don't know 16, I think, and I think I was four, I don't know 4.25 an hour, something like that. But only, only two things I remember about this job because I was in the shipping department. I was in the back, and I would just package stuff up, we'd get things in, package them up, UPS guy would come at 4.30 every day, and we'd put them on there and the start for the next day and stuff. Only thing I remember is how to spell Albuquerque, because I just wrote on all these, you know, A-L-B-U-Q-V-R-Q-U, because tons of stuff went to Albuquerque. And this other guy who, who was in the shop, kind of a little bit on the side, listened, listened to this radio program, AM radio program, and it was, all, it was this, like, hyper-spiritual warfare stuff, and, like, people would call in, and it was all about just, like, casting out demons, and it, it, it was this hyper spiritual warfare kind of experience and and i remember at the time you know thinking like this is what spiritual warfare is like like it's involved you know and i always kept i did did kind of wonder later like how is it that all these demon possessed people are listening to christian am radio that just seems i just don't met no many that do that but this was happening all the time regularly tonight i want to look at, at at two events two two events in the life of christ that started a job started his career I would say, unarguably, the most world-impacting career that has ever been had by any other person in the world. That's this three-year period of ministry that we have recorded in the Gospels of Jesus. But it also involves some significant spiritual warfare. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we're just going to read a few verses. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 411. And it begins in the baptism of Jesus, Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. Jesus replied, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, the heavens opened up, and he saw... The spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him. It's also written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. One thing that's interesting uh, in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there, there are only two events that, that all four of these authors each record. Uh, you read the Gospels and you realize we call them synoptic, at least the first three synoptic Gospels, which is to say it's like four or three different people standing at different street corners looking at the same event or accident and recording it from, from their perspective. And so you have them drawing out different elements and different events with an intended purpose, as all authors have. Outside of the crucifixion itself, the baptism of Jesus is the only event of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels. This is paramount somehow. This is crucial. This is 
important. And what I want us to see tonight is, now we read two events. We read the baptism, and then we also read this temptation in the desert by Satan. And what I want us to see is that these two events, the, the baptism and the temptation, are connected tightly by a single word. If you have your Bibles, chapter 4, verse 1, look at the very first word that's used. Then. Then. See, first comes powerful words of assurance, powerful words of affirmation from the Father. Remember, it says to Jesus, this is my, this is my son whom I love. With him I am, I am well pleased, meaning I am sad. He satisfies every, every command, every demand that I could possibly have. I am fully pleased in this person. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. One commentator writes, then is almost therefore. Uh, after great blessing and success came trial and temptation. Have you ever noticed that even, even the most gifted people that you might know in the world, the most intelligent, the most savvy people that you know in the world, cannot secure a life that is completely sustained by success uh, or, or joy or blessing? It, eventually something shatters that. Something works its way in. Something is lost. It, eventually, even the most perfect island away from all of the brokenness gets invaded in one way or another. Now, there's a lot of responses. The religious response is you could say, well, what if we just played our part better, right? What if, what if we just kind of did um, what we need to do? You know, what, what if we always made wise decisions? What if, what if we prayed every day? What if, what if we asked for God's favor? What if, what if we perfectly obeyed? God, what if we became perfectly wise in understanding every situation? What if we knew the human heart, our own fully, we knew everything that's there and others? What, what if our faith was unwavering in God? What if I never doubted? What if I perfectly followed God? Surely then God would protect me, right? My wise choices, my perfectly wise choices, my holiness would guard me. Life would go well, right? Wrong. <laughs> That's what this text is. Here we have Jesus. Jesus is all those things. Think about it. Jesus is the one who it's it's almost like Matthew saying, read my lips. No one escapes trials and temptations. No one blessed by a father, fully accepted. Then one of the hardest times in his life. He goes to. And in fact, I would suggest that this happens to people that God loves very very much because what if it's actually a part of God's oftentimes kind of mysterious plan for for growing you into the person that he has designed for you to be growing into the mature person that he longs for you to be because see here's the order that we see in this passage God's love and power then evil temptation wilderness terrible hunger thirst Difficulty. Think about that order. You might kind of think of Job's friends. If you've ever read the Old Testament book of Job. Job is this person who, who lives an exemplary life, we're told. And then virtually everything's taken away from him. Everything that could go wrong goes wrong. He loses his family. He loses considerable wealth. Almost everything he has. He finally loses his, his health. And he's sent into an emotional desert. He's sent into a spiritual desert. And his friends come to him and they say, look, Job, we know how this works. If, if you're pleasing to God, if you obey him, if you follow him, if you have a sincere heart, if all the motives, then things go well for you. Clearly, the reason your life is falling apart on every possible front you can imagine, there's something that is displeasing to God. Maybe it's a secret sin in your life. Maybe you don't even know. Maybe you need to really pray and say, God, is there something there that I don't even know is there? Something I've done. But clearly... Something is wrong with you. And see, I would suggest most people by default think this way, even those who aren't very religious. If, if you're financially well off, you, you will tend to think that people who are poor, they're just not working as hard as you are. Um, if, if you have an emotionally stable and healthy family, 
you will tend to think the families that you see that just are experiencing just a lot of raggedness and a lot of dysfunction, they, they just don't care as much about parenting or about being healthy or whatever it might be as you do. See, if, if we're not suffering at the moment, there's a tendency for us to take credit. That's not luck. It's not grace. It's not just happenstance. It's something that I'm doing. It's my wisdom, my devotion, my piety, my hard work, my intelligence, my fill in the blank. Right? (laughs) But Matthew chapter 3, we see the only person in history who truly lived a good, in the full sense of the word, a good life. If anyone merited to, to not have to go through suffering and difficulty and trials, it is Jesus. He earned full acceptance by God. Yet, his life went terribly wrong. And this temptation, you think, if you've read the Gospels, this temptation, you guys, this is just the beginning of it. It's just the opening round. There will be a steady progression of rejection from people in his life. There will be actual, actually attempts on his life. There will be betrayals from his closest friends. There will be poverty. There will be emotional grief. There will be torture. And finally, death. And just prior to that, he will be tried and executed in an act of injustice. Everything will seem to go wrong from this point on. So this brings up something I think crucial. And that is that the the power, the complexity, the um, intractability of of evil in our world. That's, That's this big question. We're in a series looking at how does Jesus in his encounters with people and activities, how does he address the big questions of life? And I don't know if there are many that are more fundamental than this in terms of just our daily life, especially the times sort of where we're hit in the face with those trials and those difficulties. Now, secular people, if you're from a secular perspective, uh, you're going to see the world made up of merely material forces, okay? Which is to say... um, there's no such thing as, you know, a soul or a spirit. Every, everything is reducible to purely materialistic forces. There's no, there are no demons, no, uh, you know, intelligent, supernatural evil intelligence. There are no angels. Um, and, and so the solution you're going to tend to look to from a secular perspective will be uh, educating people who are, are ignorant or maybe changing social systems, trying to find the best possible government system and, and, and you can have a systemic uh, solution there or maybe provide better psychological care or, or maybe pharmacological care for the you know, person if there's, if there's a chemical imbalance. You're going to look for those types of solutions. That's the way to the cure. The biblical view, the biblical view says that evil is much more uh, multidimensional. It's much more nuanced. It's actually much more complex. That's too far of us, too, too simplistic of a view to just say it's reducible to you know, this kind of system or that sort of thing or, or whatever it might be. In addition to ignorance and imbalances and injustice in systems and in cultures, there really is an evil supernatural intelligence, according to the Christian view. That is Satan. And his minions. And what they do is they just capitalize on, on those things. It's not that they create all those things. Those are the avenues that they work through. They work in them. They work through them. They kind of magnify. So you can't simply account for all of the cosmic evil by sort of taking a head count saying, well, it's, it's a result of all these different people in here. There's a lot of, you know, even in evil organizations, as we look at, there are a lot of ignorant people. There's some people who are, yes, prideful and all those sorts of things. But it's almost like there's this power behind everything which is magnifying it, which is directing it, which is pushing it on in some way. There really are demonic forces. And so when, when true goodness, when true godliness actually uh, starts up, you can see then these forces would, would be attracted to it. They would be stirred up to actually attack those things. And that's just what we see here at Jesus' baptism and immediately following it. The Bible speaks about our encounters with supernatural evil in terms of battle. It uses this language of, of, of going into battle, fighting, warfare, this sort of language whenever it speaks of our interactions with them. Now, here's the reality. If, it is, if this is true... 
if this is the case, if this is the real kind of landscape and fabric of reality, and I don't know where the attack is coming from, or I don't know the nature of evil and sort of in this nuanced, you know, complex uh, world, how capable am I at going through it? Well, not very. I will be much more likely to be a victim if I'm not aware of it. So what I want to look at tonight, and I think that this, tells, this text tells us, is that to face evil, we need to answer three questions, and these are in your outlines. We need to answer three questions. Who is the enemy? Where's the front, which is to say, where's the front of the battle? And what is our best defense in this fight? Who is the enemy? Where is the front? And what is our best defense in the fight? Now, the first one, who, who is our enemy? Um, his, historically, there have been two kind of um, rival views to the biblical view of how we understand evil and its role and how it interacts in the world and that sort of thing. The first one we'll call dualism. And if you kind of think of dualism as sort of two, two equal and opposite powers, good and evil. And reality, according to dualism, reality takes place along this line right here. This is life. Your life is going to happen amidst a line of, of banging and explosions and all the, all the impact between good and evil. And this battle goes on forever. This, this is the nature. This doesn't get fixed or resolved. This is the fabric of reality. It always has been. It always will be. St. Augustine, uh, ancient church father, this is a guy who's living in the 300s, who's quite aware of ancient paganism and that sort of thing. In his book, The City of God, he says paganism is dualistic, which is to say there are good gods and there are bad gods. There are good forces and there are bad forces. And the world is fundamentally this, this violent interaction. It's not a place of order. It's not a place of beauty. So in that sense, there's no hope of fixing it. It's just a, an ongoing constant battle. There's no hope of resolving the struggle. Life is struggle. To use kind of a modern phrase from a modern secular thinker, uh, Nature is red in tooth and claw. It's just violent and it's bloody and that's all there is to it. Now, the other view is what you might call monism. Um, you might also think of it as just pantheism. You might have heard that word oftentimes more. Monism is the idea that everything is really one. All is one or within pantheism, all is God and God is all or all is one and one is all. Everything is real. What we have in common is not just, oh, we're, you know, of the human nature. We really are the same entity, the same reality. There, there are no are no distinction. Every distinction that you make between people, between life, between values, between different actions that people have um, isn't real. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about the idea that he says a pantheist or a monist in this case, they can look at a dying person on the street, uh, maybe or, or someone dying of cancer, or they could look at extreme poverty and say, if you could just see it from the divine perspective, this too is God. Okay? There's no true distinction between good and evil. Everything is really one. It's just you don't really have the right perspective. So good and evil within the monistic perspective, they're not eternal. In fact, they're kind of an illusion. And one day it'll really be seen for that. All is one. It's sort of an illusion that you even think they're there. So what about the modern secular? You might say, that's great. I don't know many pantheists. I don't know too many monists. I don't know, no, I don't know too many. Dis-. So what is the modern secular perspective. I would suggest the modern secular perspective, the culture we live in, is a fragmented view of this. It's borrowing from both of these. It doesn't have a very good coherent explanation of evil and good and how they interact in the world that we live in. On the one hand, 
a lot, a lot like dualism. The current secular perspective is um, life is sort of an unending series of, of explosive rivalry, right? Survival of the fittest. The only reason that we are here is because we survived. Again, nature's red in tooth and claw. And so the only way that we're really going to go on, that we're going to evolve or continue existing in any way, is if we win, is if we uh, go through these violent, purposeless, ongoing ends. So there's no cure to the violence. It is the fabric of reality. We got here through violent, purposeless means, and that's the way we're going to continue moving on. So that's kind of one thing that they take from dualism. On the other hand, the current kind of secular view, in this last century, an idea came to prominence, uh, certainly within the West, of an idea that uh, that we call relativism, cultural relativism. You've heard the phrase, uh, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, right? It's all perspective, okay? Your, Your cultural perspective and calling something evil, if you were to just move around from a different perspective, you'd... It's gone. The problem's gone. So evil becomes like it is in monism. There there really isn't anything that's actually evil. It's all just perspective. So there's this perspectivalism within secular modern culture today. And so evil is in the eye of the beholder. It becomes, in that sense, an illusion. Now, Christianity will give you neither dualism, which has no hope because there's no end, Christianity says there's an end. But Christianity also does not give you monism, which, of course, in monism, there's no hope because it's not even there to begin with. It's all kind of an illusion. Christianity says it's there, it's very real, but there is a very real God who is infinitely powerful who will put an end to all injustice, will put an end to all evil. And if it's true that there are demonic forces out there, then cosmic evil in the world, it can't be reduced to just what choice that this hominid makes or that person makes, it can't be reduced to that. There has to be something beyond, something behind it. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not to say all evil is Satan. Okay? Remember the old phrase or the, the old skit or whatever, you know, the devil made me do it. You know, it's not that. Okay? Lock up the devil and all of the evil within the human you know, human persons would be horrible and it would be rampant. That's, it's not to say everything comes from Satan. But it's this idea that it's a significant component of the reality of evil in our world. Tim Keller, whose, whose book we're kind of launching off of Encounters with Jesus for this series, he, he put it this way. He said, there's some kind of force out there that magnifies, complicates, and perpetuates the bad things that are happening in the social in a you know, broader world, and the psychological, even in my own life, systems of our world. And see, Christianity, like we said, that's also not dualistic. Uh, there are demonic forces, but they're, they're created beings. Satan is not an equal to God. He's a created angel. Other demons are created angels. Um, okay, that's, that's who the enemy is. What about this next piece? How, what does the text tell us about where the main front is? The point of attack. If Satan is truly involved in our world, in our experience of evil, and it's going on in all scenarios, it's not just inside of us, it's outside of us. It's not just personal, it's, it's social and in systems. It's, it's rampant, it's everywhere in that sense. Well, the text, verse 3 and verse 6, look, look what's said here. This, this is where the attack comes. Verse 3 and verse 6, the same thing. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread, jump off, and you know, God will protect you. If you are the son of God. This is the main front, both against Jesus and I would suggest even us now. Now, at the baptism, think about what had happened here in the text we read. At the baptism, God assured Jesus that, that he's... He's the father's, that he's absolutely the beloved son. And Satan immediately goes right to that point. That's the very place and the very moment that he goes after in his attack. And he, here's what he does. He asks God to make him prove it. He said that, right? Remember God said, you're the, so prove it. Make God prove it. Well, think, anytime you ask for a demonstration, 
Why do you, you ask for a demonstration because you're not quite sure you doubt? Right? That's why I ask for a demonstration. If, if someone says, oh, yeah, I can do it. You know, if someone's going to sell me something, oh, yeah, this can do that. I'm going to say, let me see. Right. Buyer beware. I don't know. I'm like, oh, that's great. He's going after Jesus and saying, well, make him show you. Can you see? It's just gently, gently inserting a little bit of doubt there because it doesn't sound that bad. Well, sure. Okay. Just, you know, God, can you, can you show me? You said it. So prove it, you know, back it up, put your money where your mouth is. But it's inserting a seed of, I'm not really sure I can take God at his word. What if I can't trust him? Because I know people I can't always trust. What if I really can't trust God? That's Satan's main goal. Satan wants Jesus to lose his certainty and his assurance that God fully and unconditionally loves and accepts him. Unconditional fatherly love. How does Satan do that with us? Well, first, he wants us to keep us from believing that Jesus really is the unique Son of God, a king, not who came to a throne, but a king who came to a cross. And because of his death on the cross, that he actually makes me right. And I could be received by God on the basis of Jesus. That's what Satan wants to go after. There's there's an old hymn that uses these words. Before the throne absolved, we stand. Your love has met your law's demand. See, if, if we rest in Christ's absolutely finished work for us, we're told in Scripture that we can be, it uses this cool phrase, adopted. We can be adopted into the family of God. John 1.12, we read, Yet to all who did receive him, that being Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. What that means is that we can know that we are also God's beloved children, and that in Christ, in Christ we are totally well-pleasing. We completely meet all of his demands because I stand in Christ, because you stand in Christ. That assurance, you guys, that, that is the taproot for you living anything of a meaningful, well-adjusted life. It is the absolute core and foundation. If you do not have that, if I do not have that, you will not live an emotionally healthy spiritual life. You just won't do it. See, when we live, when we live here in this place, if this really is my assurance and who I am, then, then all the fears like that I've had my whole life that have just kind of been there and that still kind of raised, all, all the anxieties, all the insecurities that I have, that have, that have haunted me, they begin to slowly dissipate. Listen, listen to how Keller puts it here. Success and failure in our work, if, you, if you're grounded in this way with Christ, if the taproot of your life is this assurance in him, success and, and failure in our work neither puffs us up nor devastates us. You get a great report, that's not what you live on. You don't fly high as a kite just because you got a promotion. And as soon as it's gone, you're absolutely in, in despair. He says, we're not driven by unhappiness over our looks or our status. We are not deflated by criticism as we were before. Our self-image rests in a love we cannot lose. Wow, can you imagine that? To have your self-image, it's so frail. You know how weak it is. We all know how weak our self-image is. To have it rest in something that cannot be lost or fail. Now, obviously, isn't it obvious why Satan would go after this then in his temptation here? What, isn't it obvious this would be his frontal attack, both for Jesus and for us? Satan wants more than anything to stop you from ever acquiring that kind of power in Christ. Because think about that. To be unmovable, no matter what comes your way, no matter how much difficulty, no matter how much struggle, to be unmovable, there's no greater power in a world where there truly is conflict, where there's explosive difficulty, which there certainly is. And so people who, people who do not believe in Christianity, I would suggest that Satan aims to keep them blind, 
to who Jesus really is. People who, who do think they believe in Christianity, he wants them to kind of not really grasp the gospel. This whole idea that I'm accepted by God, not on my own goodness, but, but you know, I've, I kind of have to do certain things in order you know, to really be accepted. And those of us who do know in principle that we're adopted sons and daughters, Satan's aim is that we slide back into a, a self-image-based condition where, where my moral performance, my goodness, I kind of start to feel smug about. And I kind of start to feel a little bit superior to others because, well, look at my record lately. It's been pretty good. I've been doing this and I've been doing that. And so and I kind of start to feel a little bit of a sense of superiority. Satan wins. As soon as that happens, he wins. doesn't matter who it is. Think, think of your heart or the nature of your heart as an engine. Okay? And this engine of your heart, there's a kind of fuel that can power it cleanly. There's a kind of fuel that can power it uh, efficiently. And there's a kind of fuel that it doesn't just pollute the area around you. It ends up destroying the engine itself. And the dirty fuel is the fuel of uh, fear or, or maybe the need uh, to prove yourself who you really are. Maybe, maybe the need to be needed by somebody else. Um, maybe it's the need to express yourself fully and without restraint. There, there's, there are tons of fuels that will motivate you for a while. And they work, but it's this dirty fuel. It ends up breaking down. All of those fuels, they become demonic. Because they will possess you. They will absolutely control your life. You won't be able to function without them. And they will let you down. Best case, they will just let you down. A Keller quotes uh, J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop of Liverpool, England. Back, uh, this, is, this is like back in the 1800s. And, and he wrote a, uh, an essay simply entitled Assurance. And listen to these words. He's speaking of this, of this sort of taproot idea of being, you know, having this assurance and living there. He says, now assurance goes far to set a child of God free and enables him to feel that the great business of life is a settled business, the great debt, a paid debt, the great disease, a healed diseased, and the great work of finished work. And all other business, diseases, debts, and work are then by comparison small. In this way, assurance makes him patient in tribulation, calm under bereavement, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid of evil tidings, in every condition content, for it gives him a fixedness of heart. It sweetens his bitter cups, it lessens the burdens of his crosses, it smooths the rough places over which he travels, and it lightens the valley of the shadow of death. It makes him always feel that he has something solid beneath his feet and something firm under his hands, a sure friend along the way. And a sure home at the end. But there's only one fuel that's clean. And this is what we see in scripture. That will not lead me to just being disappointed. Not, not, not lead me to just this weariness of life. That one fuel is God's love for you. God's love for me. That is the only fuel that will really fuel my heart cleanly. Is his love for me. So what is, what is the best defense for this fight? I know who the enemy is. I know where the attack happens. So what is, what's the best defense for the fight? What does the text show us? Well, first we see that Jesus doesn't deal with Satan, uh, you know, the way a Hollywood movie would do it, right? There's no special effects. I mean, it's not, it's not dramatic. It's, you know, it's, it's not these phenomenal kind of maybe even kind of magical or superstitious sort of in, incantations. Now, again, I'm not saying here that demon possession isn't a reality. We see that in Scripture. We, we, we see Jesus interacting with that. At times there is appropriateness for a word of command in those scenarios. But in general, Satan does not, he doesn't go after you with fangs in your flesh. The way he goes after you is lies in your heart. That's much more effective, actually. You won't see that one coming. That's the one that you typically won't notice. Think about Satan's first introduction of the Bible. Where do we see him? He's in the Garden of Eden. 
And what does he come to Adam and Eve with? He doesn't hit him with a stick. He hits him with an idea. Right? He, he starts to just gently, subtly make him think, well, are you sure God has your best interests in mind? What if this is really more about him than about you? It's just a question. But, but didn't he say this? Are you sure? It's just a question. It's harmless. It's certainly harmless. He calls into question God's character very subtly. He, just, he weakens the trust just a little. He doesn't need to destroy it. Just step one is all he wants. Well, this is true of us. Our best defense in the fight against the influences of Satan, it's not reciting incantations. It's the rehearsal of the truth. Notice what Jesus does every time here when he's assaulted by the devil. See, Satan traffics in ideas. Satan wants to destroy your grasp on the truth and keep you from planting that truth deep down in your heart. That's what he wants more than anything else. See, what, what your mind believes, your emotions are going to desire, and your will will justify, and your body will carry out. So it seems obvious that the mind is the right place to start. This is why Jesus answers each one of Satan's suggestions with Scripture itself. Notice that. Remember we read it? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Then he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Then finally he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. You ever notice that even while hanging on the cross, what, what, what comes out of Jesus' mouth? He quotes Psalm 22. When you are in the moments of some of the deepest places in your life, when you're in a place of deep anxiety, deep sorrow, deep pain, what comes out of your heart, what comes out of your mouth is, is the most primal thing there is about you. I hate that statement because I have things come out of me all the time that I'm like, oh, I don't, that, that was just circumstantial. That was because of this person. They kind of pushed me. No. Jesus says, out of, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Jesus says what, what's most primal to you is what it is that, that comes out when your cup is bumped in some way or another. Do you realize that about 10% of everything that Jesus is recorded to have said in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, about 10% of it is either a direct quotation or an allusion to the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures? Isn't that interesting? Why is that? Because he was so immersed in Scripture. It was who he was, how he lived his life. See, when you have God's assurance, um, when you have his directives, when you have his promises, his, his revelations like secured deep down inside you, it is extremely difficult for Satan to get a foothold or to go after the assurance, meaning your identity. My identity is in Christ. Who I am, that doesn't waver. It's extremely difficult for him to go after that. So if Jesus Christ, the, the divine son of God, who was perfectly pleasing to the Father in every way, if he, did not, if he wasn't so presumptuous as to face the forces of evil without a profound knowledge of the Bible, both in his mind and in his heart, I mean, just kind of coming out of his pores who he is, how could we think there's any other way? To go through life. Now, you think that's a lot of work. Yeah, it's, it's called a path. It's just one step after another. It takes a great deal of time. Yeah, it takes effort. Yeah, it takes a lifetime is what it takes. It takes worship. When you worship, when you, as you're reciting scripture, as you're singing worship, daily readings, it takes meditation, it takes memorization, it takes listening to teaching. All of these things are necessary to, to really become acquainted with Scripture, as we have to do. And when we're under attack, when, when I'm tempted to sin or, or when I'm discouraged or, or just, just give up altogether, it's then that I have to wrestle these promises of God's Word deep into my heart. It's then that I have to do that. As, as Colossians 3.16 says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. That's that. I've wrestled life with God so deep into my heart that he, He's dwelling richly, his, his Word with me. Let me finish up with this. 2 Corinthians 10 3 
is maybe one of the most famous passages in scripture that that speaks of, you know, power encounters, you know, uh, supernatural, spiritual warfare and all that stuff. Okay, this is one of the key passages. And listen to what it's saying. Listen to these words. You don't have it on, on the screen, but listen to this. Second Corinthians 10, three through five. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war. Oh, that's spiritual warfare. Remember, we said the Bible's always using battle language. We don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. That means what he's going to talk about, the kind of weapons that we're going to engage with, these are divinely given, divinely empowered weapons to demolish strongholds. Wow, divine weapons to demolish strong, super spiritual stuff, right? So what's he talking about? Well, verse 5, he explains both the weapons we fight with and spiritual strongholds. We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Isn't that interesting? Arguments, pretensions, knowledge, thought. Paul says that is where, that is spiritual warfare. Now notice this last thing. Satan attacks Jesus just after he's been commissioned. Okay? Remember, he's been baptized, but he's been commissioned. That, that is given a mission to go out. Jesus is just about to engage shortly in a period of, of intense teaching, healing, liberating people from spiritual bondage. You have a mission or a commission by God. And your battle with Satan, it's not merely in your minds, it is certainly there, but it's also out in the world. Anytime you seek to undo Satan's work, that's spiritual warfare. Well, what do you mean undo Satan's work? Well, when you find out that there is a neighbor who's had a death in the family and you bring a meal over to them, you're undoing Satan's work. When you work to stop injustice, Maybe through serving on some uh, group to halt human trafficking. Maybe it's to curb injustice locally when you go into a school and you find some at-risk children and you teach them to read and you teach them that people cares about you. You're going after the place where Satan works. When you go back to your child after, after sinning against them for yelling and screaming and you ask their forgiveness. When you turn your eye away from that just lingering, lustful thought. When you hold your tongue and you don't gossip or you know, break the big story about the thing that just happened to the friend of yours, when you seek to help a person find faith in Christ, you are undoing the work of Satan, the work that, is, that, that Satan is feverishly and nervously about in this world. And we do this not on our own strength. We do it by the power of the one who, like Hebrews 4.16 says, gives us mercy and grace. Grace means divine power. Gives us grace to help us in our time of need. The power of Christ in us. That's what that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention, God, to see what it is that you are commissioning us to in our worlds and the spheres of influence that, that we already find ourselves in. God, would you help us to be, I think of the word that scripture constantly, constantly, constantly uses, be aware, be on guard, be alert. This warning to just say, do not be naive. God, would you help us to be, we do not want to be a part of some sort of Christianity which has no fight to it. There's no self-denial. There's no working. There's no pushing. God, we want to be a part of a faith which has a fight to it. A faith which says we recognize there is a real enemy. We don't, we don't give him more power than he deserves. But we're also not naive giving him or recognizing the power that he does have. But help us to be aware, to be on guard, to be alert. Help us to see the subtle, tiny ways that the enemy would just sneak into a thought, an idea, an action, a response, whatever it might be. And it just brings a little bit more darkness. But help us to bring the light of Christ into your world, God, 
into your world that you have planned to redeem. To bring back to full fruition. For your kingdom to just expand. For new creation to break out. And God, that's what we want to be about. Help us to go about this commissioning that you've given us. Again, not on our own steam. But to do it empowered by the one who was, has been tempted in every way as we have, yet was without sin. The one who knows every difficulty, every challenge, every struggle. He knows the frailty of our hearts. He knows what's in us. He knows what we're made of. And yet he calls us. And yet you say that your church is the hope of the world. Wow. The church is just us. <laughs> Thank you for building it, though, God. Help us to be faithful to your call. God, we love you. Thank you for this community. Thank you for people who, who say I'm in. People who respond and say, do your work through me, God, whatever that might be. And, I, and Lord, I want to just pray specifically for people who, who would say right now that they're in extreme difficulties. The trials, the temptations, the betrayals, the whatever it might be, just seem so heavy. God, would you, with your grace... Would you reach out and just empower those people? Wrap your arms around them like all eternity. May they feel your comfort and your strength and be encouraged. May they have a buoyancy of spirit that only comes from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, you guys, thanks so much for just being a part of this community, being here. Go grab your kids. Feel free to come back and finish off the snack table, okay? And again, if you'd be interested in signing up back there, please do that on your way out. Love you guys. Our prayer team will be up front if we can pray with over anything for you.